It is the 4th of July, everybody. Happy 4th of July from CNA. In my family, on the 4th of July, we, well, what do we do? I've got three kids, and one of them hates fireworks. So some of us go to the fireworks. Some of us stay home and watch fireworks on TV. Some of us light sparklers in the backyard. We grill stuff. I make everyone sit down as I read a sermon from Archbishop John Carroll. You know, just ordinary American 4th of July stuff. And this week on CNA Newsroom, we're talking about ordinary American 4th of July stuff. I actually just had somebody ask me, how do you spend the 4th of July? This is Christine Wohar. She lives in Nashville. A couple of days ago, I asked her what she had planned for the 4th of July. We're not friends or anything. We've actually never met. But I wanted to ask Christine about her July 4th plans because there's a good chance she's doing something a little different than you and me. Because Christine is the founder and director of Fersati USA, a nonprofit group working to spread the word about blessed peer Giorgio Fersati. His feast day is, you guessed it, July 4th. It's, it's a shame in a way because even if he's canonized, I don't know that we would celebrate him that much here in the U.S. because of the 4th of July in, the, in a liturgical sense. That's, that's kind of the unfortunate thing about that being his feast day. Christine first encountered Pier Giorgio when she was helping launch a youth group at her parish, and she was looking for a patron saint. She told me she'd always had a big devotion to St. Bernadette. St. Bernadette is the young French girl the Virgin Mary appeared to in the 1800s. And though St. Bernadette would have made a fine patron for Christine's youth group, Christine thought Pier Giorgio was, well, more relatable. I have low expectations that I will ever see the Blessed Mother, let's just say. I probably won't found religious communities or have the stigmata or bilocate. But with Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, he really speaks to the ordinary person. His form of spirituality is attainable. I don't think that the other saints' ways are not necessarily attainable, but they may seem that way to us because we can compartmentalize and say, well, that's for the saints, or holiness is for the saints, or that person did this, and that's why they were able to do it, or that was a priest, or that was a nun, and so on. Pierre Georgia was a lay person who came from a wealthy family, whose parents had a difficult marriage, who didn't do so well in school, who had some habits that we might not admire today, like he smoked short, stinky cigars. He was an athlete, he was good-looking, he was a practical joker. The way that we can excuse ourselves, I think, sometimes, the holiness is for the saints, per, you know, in quotes, those saints. I think Pier Giorgio takes away all excuses because he lived in the world we live in, you know, he had a girlfriend, he had difficulties in his family life, his personal life, his academic life, and so on. But he found the way to live a holy life every day. Pier Giorgio is a pretty recent saint. He was born in Italy in 1901. His mother was a painter. His father was a politician and a businessman. Pier Giorgio showed a special love for our Lord from a young age. The two poles of his life were the Eucharist and the Blessed Mother. By 17, Pier Giorgio was a member of the Marian Sodality and the Apostleship of Prayer. He got permission to receive communion daily, which was a pretty big deal at that time. And he began to spend his spare time serving the poor in his community. Pier Giorgio said, Jesus comes to me every day in communion. 
and I repay him in my small way by visiting the poor. He loved mountain climbing. He would plan hikes with his friends, and during those hikes, they'd pray together or talk about the faith. He loved the theater, art, and music. He was who he was. No one ever laughed at him, his friends, because they knew he was authentic. And he was that person in every area of his life, 24-7. Pier Giorgio didn't live very long. He died when he was 25. It's believed that he died from an illness that he got while he was caring for poor people who were sick in his own town. Pier Giorgio's family had no idea about his life of service until his funeral, when lots of sick and poor people from Turin, everyone that he had cared for in the last seven years of his life, lined the streets to mourn his death. His family was shocked. Pope St. John Paul II loved Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati. He was inspired by him as a young man. And in his talks during his papacy, he would speak to young people and say, get to know him. St. John Paul II visited Pier Giorgio's tomb in 1989. The next year, he beatified Pier Giorgio. He called him the Man of the Eight Beatitudes. He named Pier Giorgio a patron of World Youth Day. Pope John Paul II at the beatification in his homily said, Pier Giorgio testifies that holiness is possible for everyone. It's not that complicated, and I think his life really shows us. So by learning his story and all the things he endured in his daily life, and how he lived it, one of the great quotes about him is that he made religion attractive by the way he practiced it. And we need to do better at that, I think, all of us in, in, you know, in our walks in the, in the Catholic Church right now. So this July 4th, Christine plans on celebrating Independence Day like the rest of us, but the day for her will also be special because of Pier Giorgio Frassati. I see fireworks, I think, Pier Giorgio. The story of Pier Giorgio Frassati and Christine was the first story in our podcast today, but we have a lot more for you. In this episode, we are bringing you a 4th of July six-pack. Six segments, you've already heard the first one, all about the 4th of July. We heard about Pier Giorgio Frassati. You'll hear about the Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, about liturgy and the 4th of July. And guess what? That's only half the six-pack. We're going to down the whole thing. It's the 4th of July, everybody. Sit back, crack open a cold one, and hang out with us. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Part 2. Charles Carroll of Carrollton was a man of superlatives. Out of all the signers of the Declaration of Independence, Charles was the wealthiest. He was also the longest-lived of all the signers, surviving to the ripe old age of 95. But perhaps most notably, Charles Carroll was the only signer of the Declaration who was Catholic. Charles was born in 1737 in Maryland, out of wedlock though his parents did eventually marry. It was really Carroll who broke through that glass ceiling and became the first prominent Catholic politician in American history. I called up Professor Scott McDermott. Assistant Professor of History at Albany State University in Georgia. Who wrote the book on Charles Carroll, literally. He had to go to Europe to get a Catholic education from the Jesuits in St. Omer. 
France because uh, Catholic education was illegal. Throughout the 13 English mainland colonies, Catholics really were a very oppressed minority group. In the early days of the American colonies, Catholics faced some pretty serious persecution. Including not being able to vote, not being able to hold public office, not being able to worship publicly. Maryland itself was founded by the Catholic Lord Baltimore, originally as a haven for Catholics arriving in North America. But since then... There had been a Protestant takeover of the government of the colony after 1688, and so um, there were many legal disabilities that Catholics suffered under. So uh, wealthy Catholics like the Carrolls were very important for the Catholic community because they were able to sponsor um, masses in their homes. Um, So they had chaplains who were trying to keep the Catholic faith alive um, in in America, but it, it, it was very difficult. Although the Carroll family was wealthy, the prejudice they faced made life very difficult in many ways. You have to understand that um, after the gunpowder plot of 1605, that time when Guy Fawkes tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, Catholics were seen in the British Empire much the way that some people unfortunately see all Muslims today in America as potential terrorists. Catholics were seen as a danger to the state, and thus many colonies passed laws restricting their freedoms. In fact, really, uh, Pennsylvania was the only colony that, that really did not have legal disabilities for Catholics in, in the years immediately before the revolution. Many colonies officially barred uh, Catholics from, from living there. Charles's cousin, John Carroll, became the very first archbishop in the colonies when he became shepherd of the Diocese of Baltimore. And really, um, the Carrolls were determined to help Catholics to regain their political rights. But it it was really the character and the personality of Carroll and his intellect, which, like I said, was formed in the great Catholic tradition of political thought by the Jesuits, who was able just at the right moment in um, the 1770s to to step forward and to make himself really indispensable to the revolutionary movement. This was something that surprised the other founding fathers, who couldn't conceive of a Roman Catholic, who was also a patriotic American. Other founding fathers, like John Adams, uh, when they saw that here was a Catholic who was on his way to becoming a great statesman and who was a great patriot, they really sat up and took notice. Ultimately, Professor McDermott says, Charles Carroll's brand of patriotic Catholicism is one that we can learn from today. It's easy for us Catholics to get discouraged, and we may be tempted to just give up, to withdraw from public life. But, you know, again, with Carroll, we're looking at someone who was under severe legal and personal disabilities, who didn't give up, who persevered, and um, ultimately who triumphed, and who made this country a better place, uh, not just for Catholics, but for everyone. So I think the message of Carol is don't lose hope. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. Part 3 In the general Roman calendar, July 4th is the optional memorial of St. Elizabeth of Portugal. But in the dioceses of the U.S., St. Elizabeth is bumped to July 5th, quote, to better enable the celebration of Independence Day. So if you're attending Mass in the ordinary form this July 4th, you'll either hear the Mass of the Feria or a Mass of Independence Day. 
To get an idea of how the church in the U.S. can liturgically celebrate Independence Day, I'd like to give you a look at the proper text for the day's Mass. The texts use language like unity, peace, and justice. One of the options for the preface includes a reference to the Founding Fathers. Christ, it says, spoke to us a message of peace and taught us to live as brothers and sisters. His message took form in the vision of our Founding Fathers as they fashioned a nation where we might live as one. His message lives on in our midst is our task for today and a promise for tomorrow. It's also worth noting that even though Independence Day is an optional memorial in the U.S., it does include a gloria and a solemn blessing, which are normally reserved for feasts or solemnities. Now, out of curiosity, our editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, conducted a super scientific Twitter poll this morning to get an idea of how widely the Independence Day Mass is celebrated, since it was news to much of our office. Among respondents, 85% said they didn't know of the text or weren't a priest, 9% know of it and choose not to use it, and the 6% who do use it are equally split between the two options. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Carl Wunderson. We are halfway through our 4th of July six-pack, and we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Michelle McDaniel. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I'm an intern this year. Hey, I'm Bea Kwasa, and I'm an intern this year, and I'm from Chicago. So now that we're here at CNA, both of us are mostly doing writing, but we're also making our debut on podcasts. I listen to CNA Newsroom because it gives knowledgeable opinions and information from Catholics on real issues happening all around the world. As members of a church which is universal by definition, I think that it's critical that we have an idea of what is going on throughout the world and within our own communities because being connected to the rest of the church is one of the ways it can truly be universal. I listen to podcasts because they are chock full of information that you wouldn't otherwise find in a book or on a website. They can also, at times, be life-changing. Shout out to Jesse, Dennis, and Chris at the Liturgy Guys. If you enjoy listening to CNA Newsroom, you should be sure and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is easy on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. Or if you've never heard of any of those, just open whatever podcast app you have on your phone, tap the magnifying glass, and type in CNA Newsroom. Then click the subscribe button. Now back to the show. Part 4 Hey everyone, this is Mary Farrow. Later today, I'm driving out to Nebraska with my husband to visit my family for the 4th of July. I'm really excited. I've been out of the country for the past two years on the 4th, and expatriate 4th, while interesting, is nothing compared to the 4th in the USA. My favorite thing to do on the 4th of July is to go to Seward, Nebraska, which simultaneously calls itself Nebraska's 4th of July city and America's 4th of July city, so you decide. There's a craft fair, food trucks, a parade, hot dog eating, and bubblegum blowing contests, and it's just great. We wanted to talk with someone about what it looks like to be a good Catholic and a good American. So we called up Stephen White. Stephen is a fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington. He's also the author of the book Red, White, Blue, and Catholic. And he thinks it's really, really good for us to celebrate patriotic holidays like the 4th of July or Memorial Day or Labor Day. It's really important to celebrate these things. And it's not because our country is perfect. Lord knows. We all know. 
And it's not to whitewash history or to ignore what's wrong or just sort of chant USA, USA. Celebrating patriotic holidays like the 4th of July are sort of like date nights for citizenship, right? In a relationship, in a marriage, you go on a date not to ignore all the hardships or to pretend like everything is perfect, but to celebrate what is best, to focus on what is good and what you hope to be even better. It's hard to be a good citizen if you don't love the political community of which you're a part. And holidays like the 4th of July are a good way to, to remind us of what is lovable in the best sense about our country. The funny thing is, for as much as Stephen loves the 4th of July, he isn't even going to be here in the United States on the 4th. That's because he's in Krakow, Poland. And he's been in Krakow for every 4th of July since 2006 because of a program called Tertio Millenio, which is Latin for third millennium. The seminar brings a couple dozen students from Eastern Europe and a dozen from North America together in Krakow for several weeks of intensive study of St. John Paul II and Catholic social doctrine. It moves around a little bit, but it always seems to cover the 4th of July. It's a small expat crowd of about a dozen Americans plus some faculty and staff who are really interested in celebrating the 4th of July. But being in a minority and being overseas sort of accentuates the moment. So everyone's always excited to make a point to celebrate our nation's birthday. Stephen said celebrations vary from year to year. Usually students in that year's program will decide how they'd like to celebrate. I actually attended Terzio in the summer of 2018. I remember the feeling of arriving at Terzio and listening for the American accents in the room. Even though everyone there spoke English, it was nice when I heard some Americans with me to know that I was not alone. For the fourth last year, We walked to a restaurant and ate some really nice burgers and generally talked about all things USA, but it differs from year to year. Another is lifting a pint. We'll go find a a pub somewhere as a group and and celebrate. Interesting years are when the World Cup is showing because all the Americans are suddenly interested in soccer and sort of there's a patriotic fervor for everybody, not just Americans. So 4th of July during World Cup is usually pretty interesting. And another thing that happens most years, but not every year, is there's a lot of singing. Singing in restaurants, singing in pubs, singing in the streets as we're walking home at the end of the evening. And it's really neat because we have students from from all over Europe, not just the United States. So Americans will sing one or two patriotic songs and the Poles will respond or the Lithuanians will respond with one from theirs. So it turns into sort of a, a battle of the voices singing patriotic songs. And though Stephen isn't in the United States to participate in Fourth of July traditions, he says his work with Terzio is helping create better American Catholics by forming their understanding of Catholic social doctrine. The idea is to help shape well-rounded people, to be the kinds of people, the kinds of citizens that our countries and our societies need in order to flourish. Our countries can't just run themselves just because you have elections or just because you have a certain sort of balance of economic freedom and state regulation. You have to have people possessed of certain virtues. You have to have citizens of a certain kind of character for all of that to work, if it's going to work. I think it's easy and a mistake to see the church's social teaching as sort of a a series of do's and don'ts that are sort of compiled together to come up with sort of a Catholic platform. What the church's social teaching really is, is a vision of what it means to be fully human. When you understand our origin as created in God's image, and our end as being created for community here and now, imperfectly, but also for communion forever in heaven. When you understand the human person, when you understand ourselves in that context, 
how we live together takes on a much more profound meaning. And you start to see the choices that we make about how we live, how we spend our money, how we engage in politics, all of those tied to our sense of vocation as, as human persons. Studying the church's social teaching can sometimes seem daunting, but getting a sense of how integrated it is can be really helpful in it, and it can change one's outlook from sort of the tired, here are the things we are supposed to be for and here are the things you're supposed to be against. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Mary Farrow. Part 5. Adelaide Mana used to be our DC correspondent, and I called her up this week to talk with her about a story she wrote for us back in 2015. A story about the historic Basilica of St. Mary of the Immaculate Conception in Virginia. Adelaide actually grew up near the Basilica. She told me St. Mary's is right across the street from one of the city's shopping malls. And so anytime you went into downtown Norfolk, going from the interstate, you passed St. Mary's. St. Mary's wasn't Adelaide's parish growing up, but it was always a visual landmark. A lot of the parishes in that area are suburban, much newer, um, it built after the 1970s, and so like the architecture is very different. You don't have a lot of churches that have that traditional Gothic architecture and the stained glass windows uh, and beautiful marble altars. So it was very different from a lot of parishes down there. She never actually visited St. Mary's until she was in high school, when she dropped in for daily mass. And kind of fell into this whole entire story After Mass, a parishioner introduced himself and offered to give her a tour. Because he was on the parish council and was very proud of the parish. And I was like, sure. And there was this giant wooden cross. The cross itself must be almost eight feet, if not larger, um, and just a solid piece of wood. And he had explained that the original parish had been built centuries ago, but it burned down in a fire in the 1800s. And that was the only piece of the original parish that had remained in the rubble. And so they decided to put that in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel. Adelaide thanked the parishioner for the tour and continued on with her day. And years later, when she was working for CNA in Washington, she remembered the story of the fire at St. Mary of the Immaculate Conception. And she pitched the story to the editors. Maybe there was a deeper story there. And then I looked into it and was like, oh my goodness, this is such a treasure trove of history. St. Mary's was originally founded as St. Patrick's Parish in 1791. It predates the Diocese of Richmond by 30 years, and it predates the Bill of Rights by at least a good six months. At St. Patrick's, Catholics from all backgrounds, Irish and German immigrants, free black persons and slaves, everyone gathered for mass. And so you go from Catholics very much being underground to Catholics gaining the right to be able to worship in this country. But then in the 1800s, you see this rising wave of anti-Catholic sentiment in the know-nothings.
The Know Nothing Party was a prominent anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant movement that was largely concentrated in the northeastern states. Members worked vigorously to prevent immigrants, many of whom were Catholic, from gaining the right to vote, becoming citizens, or taking elected office. In time, members of the Know Nothings reached the doorstep of St. Patrick's. They protested the parish for allowing racially integrated masses. And shortly after, a fire. It cannot be fully proved, but sort of the consensus, both at the time and certainly in retrospect, was that it was arson by the know-nothings. The community at St. Patrick's continued to gather for Mass, and within three years, a new church building was constructed, and it's still standing today. The parish decided to rename itself in 1858 in honor of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which was proclaimed only four years earlier. It claims to be the first church in the world to take the name. In 1961, St. Mary's merged with a parish that was several blocks away, a parish that served Black Catholics. This is coming up also on the time in which Virginia was dealing with a lot of issues with segregation. So around the same time, the city of Norfolk actually shut down their entire school system for a year in order to avoid Brown versus Board of Education's ruling to integrate the schools. The merger was not popular with many of the white parishioners, and it became a test of faith for many at St. Mary's. Adelaide said Black Catholics displayed great devotion in the face of prejudice from both white parishioners who didn't consider them to be fully Catholic, and even some Black Protestants who didn't support their religious beliefs. The really cool thing is that in 1991, when St. John Paul II came to visit, he actually made the parish a basilica, the first basilica in Virginia. And he did so on the 200th anniversary of the parish's founding, kind of as this really beautiful symbol of the parish's history and its place in the history of America and certainly in the history of Virginia. There is this hidden gem um, with so much rich history that literally if you're going to the mall in Norfolk, you will drive past it. There is no escaping it. Or if you're going to a baseball game or literally anything else in downtown Norfolk, the exit from the interstate circles the entire property, which, again, is the original property from 1791. It's mind-blowing. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Bike. Part six. We have reached the very last segment in our 4th of July six-pack. And this is a story about me and about the woman who is now my wife. It was July 4th, 2003. I was 20 years old. I went to visit my girlfriend, who is now my wife, at her family's lake house in Wisconsin. We watched the fireworks. We held hands. I looked into her eyes. And then we had our very first kiss. JD, that's enough. Oh, Nobody no. wants to hear this. I think oh. I think this episode has gone long enough. 
Happy Fourth of July, everybody. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to all of our guests and to Michelle Rosa for cutting me off. See you next week. Thank you.